All right, well, we are in Galatians chapter 4, continuing on as we go. Uh, but as uh, each Sunday I bring to you the context, because uh, that's important, we need to understand Paul's arguments. If you don't keep context, you will lose what Paul is trying to communicate to these people. So in chapter 3, verses 17 through, through 29, chapter 3, 17 through 29, Paul was speaking specifically to the Jew who had received the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. We see that in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And in that section, <clears throat> Paul spoke of the law's purpose, its function, and its duration. Okay? He says that the, the purpose of the law was to convict of transgression, verses 19 and 23. Its function was to lead the sinner to Christ in order that they would be justified by faith, that is, justified by faith as opposed to the law, that's verse 24. And then the duration of the law, uh, the law was terminated uh, through Christ, saying that its purpose was fulfilled. He says, when faith has come, there's no longer any, any need for the tutor, depending on which translation you have. Uh, should be child custodian or guardian, not tutor, not a, a term that implies any kind of teaching. Okay? So if the King James has schoolmaster, uh, the New King James has tutor, I use the New King James. Uh, the translation is not good in either one. Uh, it is guardian or it's child custodian. So finished. In chapter 4, Paul then uh, bunches Jews and Gentiles together and in their unbelieving condition. And he compares them to a Roman child uh, and children who are essentially like slaves because he says they're in bondage to the elements of the world, both Jewish and pagan. And um, that it's the elements of the world that uh, I think really is the hardest piece to trans or not translate but interpret uh, in the text. But once you get what the elements of the world are, uh, then the, the whole Paul, Paul's argument and everything flows quite nicely. So I want to review that with you and let Paul, especially since he's, that's his term mostly, uh, let him define it for us. He says that the elements of the world are uh, religious rules and regulations, whether they are Jewish or pagan. It doesn't matter. He says that in verse 4 and 5 and verse 9 and 10. And then I think even more clear, Paul talks about the elements of the world in Colossians chapter 2 the best. So I want to look at verse 20 quickly with you, Colossians 2.20. Paul says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elements of the world. Okay? Uh, some translations, basic principles of the world. It's the same Greek, it's just translated differently. He says, being, being duped, he says, cheated through these things, the elements of the world, and he says, not according to Christ. So uh, there's also the contrast there that's important. The elements of the world are contrary to Christ himself, his gospel, his word, and then Paul, as he goes down the section there, he explains further what these elements of the world are. He says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Christ has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. It was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's, he's taken it out of the way He's nailed it to the cross. He says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink 
or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which he says are all shadow, shadow, a shadow of things to come. But the reality, the substance is Christ, Colossians 2, 13 through 16. So the elements of the world, he says, are the handwritten requirements, which is a reference to the law of Moses, along with its dietary regulations and its regulations associated, associated with the, the calendar, the Jewish calendar, feasts, new moons, and Sabbath keeping. Okay? And then again, Paul brings up the elements further on in the chapter. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the elements of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men, Colossians 2, 20 through 22. So the elements of, uh, of the world, he says, are the regulations or the commandments or the doctrines of men. When you look at Colossians compared to Galatians, you find that his instruction to, to both of them is quite similar. Okay, both of them were getting caught up in similar things. So again, the elements of the world, these are Regulations, they're commandments of men, whether they're Jewish in origin or they're pagan. Paul just puts them all together, clumps them together. But he says, but our death with Christ, he says, did, it ended our relationship with those things. Okay, ended it. And you remember Paul in Galatians 2.19, he said, for I, through the law, died to the law in order that I might live for God. He's saying uh, that there's no living for God until there is death to law. There's none. He says, I had to die to the law in order to live for God. Okay? Death. For the Jews, the elements of the world refers to the law of Moses to which they had to die to if they were to live for Christ. For the Gentile, the elements of the world were whatever they were brought up into in a, in a pagan religion. Okay? It doesn't matter what it was. The, the Gentile had to die to those things. It was to live for Christ. There has to be a severance. They have to be separated from one another. We must all die if we are to live. But if we died to those things through saving faith, but then we decided to go back to those things or something like them, then what? Then what? Well, that's what Paul addresses in the next part of this section. So if you're able, please stand the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading God's Word to you from uh, the New King James Version, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8. Um, I was going to do 20, but I, I don't have time. So I think, uh, I think it's verse, verse 11. So look carefully to Paul's language here. He says, But then, then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those things which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and season, seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. In vain. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I certainly don't want any of my labors to be for nothing. I don't want someone else's labor to be for nothing, especially in my own life, to forsake the good instruction of your word, the liberty that's in Christ, 
Lord, and go back to bondage. So, Lord, I pray that you use this text to teach us the truth about these matters and that we would stand fast, as Paul will say later, in the freedom with which Christ has made us free so that we would not be entangled again to a yoke of bondage as these Galatians were. So, Lord, convict us and help us to be unwavering in our commitment, Lord, to you, you and your word. So, Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, be seated, if you will. You could stand through the whole service if you wanted. I do. <laughs> Two services. Yeah. Look again with me at verse 8. Paul says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods at all. So, of course, Paul is now talking about the Gentiles, only to the Gentiles, who before coming to Christ, they worshipped idols. They were idol worshippers. Have you guys ever witnessed somebody worshipping an idol, by the way? Yeah, when I was in Africa, I got to see true idol worship for the first time. Very bizarre, very bizarre. Uh, but at one time, we have to stand, there was only a small piece of land where people did not worship idols. And that was Israel. They worshipped idols there too. But uh, every place in the world, every place, the rest of the globe, uh, was in bondage to idols. And Paul says these are not gods, but to the Corinthians he says they're actually representations of demons. Every, every idol, everything fashioned like that, is a representation of something in the demonic world and, uh, and its characteristics. And Paul has said that, you know, the Gentiles, of course, had to die. They had to die to end their relationship with these things if indeed they were to be joined to the God of heaven, to Christ. And they did. They did. Through faith in the gospel, they died and they were joined this mystical union with Christ. They were saved. They were justified. They were washed. They're being sanctified. But then there was a problem. Their development in Christ was arrested, if you will. Verse 9 and 10. He says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You're observing days and months and seasons and years. You see, in order to come to Christ for salvation, uh, the Gentiles had to abandon all things pagan, of which they did. But then these Judaizers had come to town, and now these Gentiles are convinced that they have to be joined, as it were, to all things Jewish. Okay? Beforehand, they were in, pagan to, or in bondage to paganism. But because of these Judaizers, they fell into all things Jewish. They had experienced freedom from the pagan elements of the world only to fall into the Jewish elements of the world. They went from bondage to freedom to bondage. And that's what's got Paul so upset. Freedom in Christ back to another form of religious slavery. They weren't bowing down to idols anymore. Because of the Judaizers, they were observing Jewish days, he says. Days, months, seasons, and years. Very similar to what was going on in Colossae. So real quick, just to look at these days, months, seasons, and years. The days refer to the Jewish Sabbath day. So these Gentiles were keeping the Sabbath from uh, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath. 
And then these months refer to the monthly routine of the Jew that's dictated by the lunar calendar, uh, the new moons. Okay? The seasons, it's not a reference to a day, but a time of the year. So now we're looking at the, the feasts of the Lord, the spring feasts and the fall feasts. In the spring, we had the Passover with uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? And then 50 days later, we have the Feast of First Fruits, or what we call Pentecost. And then those are the spring feasts, early spring and late spring. And then there were the fall feasts. We have the Feast of Tabernacles, of Trumpets, and then Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And finally, there's the years. Uh, this is talking about all the years honored by the Jews in their calendar. It's the year of Jubilee and the sabbatical year. Okay? So these, 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 these Gentiles, these Galatians, had left the pagan elements only to be in bondage to Jewish ones. They're now... Uh, stepping into uh, slowly, progressively, what it is to live as a Jew. Now, at this point, uh, they haven't been circumcised, the men, which as soon as you're circumcised, it's a sign of the covenant. So you are a full-blown covenant Jew at that point. They, they haven't got there. Paul will talk about it later. But the Judaizers have introduced them to certain things, and they're drawing them in. They're drawing them in until they can get them circumcised. Okay. But Paul said... He said, how is it that you turn again? How is it that you turn again? In that, in that phrase, in the original language, it, it comes with surprise. How could, you, how could you turn again? How could you go from bondage to freedom, experiencing freedom, and then, and then go back to bondage? Okay. It's a reflection of, of, of Paul's bewilderment in chapter 1, verse 6, when he said, I'm, I marvel. I'm amazed that you so quickly have turned away from the grace of God to another gospel. He says, which is not another gospel. There are some who have perverted it into something else. It's this message, it's this thing that's void, it's empty of grace. So he's shocked, he can't believe it. And then in chapter 3, he says, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? And he says, who has bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? It, it couldn't have been some rational thought that you had that you would abandon freedom to go back to bondage. Certainly you were fooled. You must have been bewitched or asleep or intoxicated, something. Something has to account for this. Because who goes back to bondage? We haven't seen any of those signs yet in protest, right? Back to bondage, back to tyranny. It may be to that, but it's not what people are really in their hearts asking for. Yeah. But Paul says, here you are. You're, you're in shackles. You're not fully shackled yet. You're, you're partially shackled to these things. And you're putting some hope in them, and it's not what you think it is. So listen to the way Paul defines the, these Jewish things. He says that they are weak and beggarly. He says weak and beggarly elements that bring their subject into bondage, verse 9. And, and so that they are weak means that they're helpless. They're helpless, Okay. They cannot affect any spiritual good for those that are devoted to them. But see, that's the very purpose that the Galatians have been sucked into the, the, the Judaizers' doctrine, is the Judaizers have fed them this lie that if you do these things, you will experience some uh, greater degree of spirituality. You'll be better Christians. You'll be something. You're going to get something good out of it. But Paul says, no, 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 it's weak. And then he says also they're beggarly, which means they're bankrupt. 
They don't have anything to offer. They can't affect change because they're weak and they really truly have nothing to offer because they're bankrupt. There's no benefit to keeping them. So, so Paul says that the observance of the Jewish Sabbath, for example, he's saying that is what's impotent. That's what's void of any benefits. Whether it's the Jewish Sabbath, it's keeping festivals, uh, days, months, seasons, years. He says it's empty. It's empty. And there's good reason for that. And we'll cover it. But no benefit in Sabbath keeping. God doesn't require it, nor does he distribute blessing because of its observance. Now, I think we have to be honest, though. Uh, there is benefits in resting. Amen? There are physical benefits to resting. But do not put a religious hat on it and say that God is pleased when those in the new covenant obey the Jewish Sabbath from the old covenant. Okay? Don't say it's religious. And what blessings may have been offered in the old covenant for keeping Sabbath are not being distributed today. God is done with that. He's moved on. And he's established a better covenant with better promises, a better hope, a whole slew of things. Okay? Now, I have people that tell me, well, no, we're still supposed to keep the Jewish Sabbath on Friday night to Saturday night. And uh, I said, well, I would love to see an example in the New Testament, the New Covenant, where Christ, the apostles, teach me that. So if God has moved on, fulfilling the Old Covenant, to usher in a New Covenant, he's moved on, I would encourage all of us to move on. Because Paul says that those things from the Old Covenant, uh, they bring their subject into bondage. It produces bondage, a pseudo-spiritual experience. That's the only thing they can affect. And then he says in verse 11, he says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. I'm, he's seriously concerned for that, over this issue of observing the calendar. Now remember, back in Galatians 2, it was because of Peter's example, uh, the gospel, it was in danger because he was introducing the gospel, or not the gospel, but the Jewish dietary regulations into new covenant living. Now in the chapter there, what we have is Peter visited Antioch, and when he was there, he would eat with the Gentiles, eating what the Gentiles were eating, this good Jewish apostle. And what he was doing in his example there was he was communicating to all the Jewish disciples that, hey, <coughs> it's okay for Jews now to eat everything. But then Jews had come up from Jerusalem, and so Peter abandoned the Gentiles, and then he would only eat with the Jews. And then he communicated to the Gentile believers that you can no longer eat that stuff, but you have to eat this stuff. And then Paul came and found him eating with his good Jewish buddies, and he got right in Peter's face, and he said, Peter, what you're doing is hypocrisy. When you see that term in the New Testament, it means you're being wicked. Okay? You're being, this is wickedness. And he says, and you're not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So you have to keep that in mind. The gospel was at stake just simply by introducing dietary regulations into it. And now the Galatians themselves through the Judaizers, they are entertaining, observing the Jewish calendar. And Paul says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. You guys, we need to be clear about what the gospel is and what it is not. Okay? It is nothing Jewish. It's a new covenant. Okay? It's a new covenant. If we entertain the Jewish calendar, um, we stop representing the truth of the gospel. If for religious purposes we start keeping the Jewish dietary regulations, we stop representing the truth of the gospel. It's wrong. It's wrong. Okay? 
So Paul says, I'm afraid that all of my gospel proclamation, all of my discipleship among you, because of your observance of the calendar, is all for nothing. All for nothing. Now, I need to clarify something. How many of you have Passover been a part of one? Well, Paul's not talking about the Exodus, as far as we can tell, uh, up until the first century. There's nothing wrong with doing that for educational purposes. He's talking about observing these things as a religious observance, as though it's something that God requires, as something that's imposed in the new covenant. Okay? Nothing wrong for educational purposes. When a Christian believes that they're obligated to do those things, that's when you begin to misrepresent the truth of the gospel and somebody ought to be concerned about you. As Paul said to the Colossians, all of these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the reality is Christ. Seven. Now think of that. All of those things are a shadow of Christ. They were looking forward and pointing to Christ, who Paul says is the fulfillment of all of those things. So why would you bother with the shadow when you have the person? Somebody reminded me of an illustration that's been used in the past. It's, as if Christ was to walk in here, how many of us would embrace his shadow? Of course you would not. You would give your attention to the man, to the person. Amen? Yeah, shadows. They were pointing forward, but Christ has come. And so the religious observance of those things is equivalent to saying that they're not a shadow of Christ Jesus, that he is not the substance of them, and that he has not yet fulfilled them. In reality, the religious observance of those things is a denial that Jesus was the Messiah. Do you get it? Yeah. You understand, that's exactly why the Jews continue to celebrate the feasts today, because they have rejected Christ as Messiah. They're waiting for him to come. But you have to understand, those feasts are not pointing anywhere any longer. Christ has come. He's come. He's fulfilled it. And that's why Paul is afraid for the Galatians. Okay. It's similar to the concern that the author of Hebrews had for his audience Except his audience was made of Jewish believers who were being tempted because of persecution to go back into the Jewish faith and its practices. But the author is very clear that Jesus has fulfilled everything in that covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 is very clear. And to go back would be a denial and a rejection of Christ. It would be a denial. It would be a rejection. And the book of Hebrews is filled with warnings and threats about that. Okay? Now the only feast that we have as Christians is the Lord's Supper. That's it. This is my blood of the new covenant. Okay. The author of Hebrews says that his blood terminated the old covenant and ushered in a new one. Brand new. Okay. Brand new. It's at his table that we look back to what he accomplished for our sins. And by our participation in the supper, we declare his atoning death. That is the gospel. And we do that. We're going to do that until he returns. And... Uh, and then Jesus said that at that time I'll sit with you in my kingdom and I will celebrate with you. Amen? Yeah. But the Jewish calendar was consummated in Christ. It's done. He's fulfilled it. He died. He atoned for sin. He conquered death. New covenants, new terms and conditions. It does not include anything in the Jewish calendar, the diet, or anything from the old covenant. They don't look forward to anything any longer because it's done and that's why Paul calls them weak and beggarly. Okay, okay. We don't dabble with shadows because we have the man. And if Paul were alive today and encountered Christians who believed they were obligated to keep the feasts, he would express the same fear. Okay. If he found a Christian leader influencing Jews and Gentiles to eat kosher, you know what Paul would do? He'd do the same thing he did to Peter. 
And then he'd send the church the book of Galatians. Nothing's changed. Okay? There's no changing the new covenant. It remains the same. And in the, in the, it, as you study the scripture, you find that the same concern is expressed in Acts chapter 15. It's, it's in Romans chapter 14. It's 2 Corinthians 3, Philippians 3, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 1, and all of the book of Hebrews. It sounds like it's a concern, doesn't it? I mean, how many New Testament books is that? Addressing this problem that was creeping into the church, bringing people back into bondage. Yeah. And for us today, it's not for us to prescribe our own version of Christianity or to create a hybrid between Christianity and Judaism. It's not okay. It's not okay. Jeremiah, the prophet, he uh, prophesied over 500 years before Christ came. And he said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant. Let me say that again. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now the author of Hebrews picks that up in Hebrews chapter 8, and he clarifies that this new covenant is not according to, it's not along the same lines as the covenant he made with Israel at Sinai, with, with its calendar rules and regulations and its myriads of other things. This new covenant that was ratified in the blood of Christ does not include those because it fulfilled those things. So all that was then is dead, it's weak, it's bankrupt, and now Christ has become everything. He's become everything. Our devotion then is not to regulations, which are just a shadow. Our devotion is to Jesus himself. And so I will not give myself to those things which have no substance, that are actually a danger to the believer. Paul says it's a curse in chapter 3, and he says it brings us into bondage here in chapter 4. Okay? It's dangerous. I want to give you another quote. I, I quoted the same theologian last week, Presbyterian theologian James Montgomery Boyce. He's actually my favorite Bible teacher. How many of you guys have heard of Dr. Boyce? All right. Do you remember the original uh, Lex Luthor from Superman? You remember his voice? That's exactly how James Montgomery Boyce sounds. It's a trip. Now, he died a long time ago. Uh, I, I believe it was the year 2000. Uh, he was just an amazing guy. R.C. Sproul said that that was the hardest year of his life when he lost James Montgomery Boyce. Um, but James is commenting on this section of Scripture and he addresses this issue of the elements, both Jewish and pagan. He says this, he says, what is most significant, however, about this listing of the Jewish observances is not that Paul opposes them as such, but that he regards them in exactly the same light as the pagan festivals. That is, under the control of and involving interaction with the demonic spirits. This does not, of course, mean that Paul would attribute the origin of the law, which includes the religious feast, to Satan. Far from it. The law is good and from God. Nevertheless, even the law, when distorted into a way of trying to earn salvation, can be used by Satan to increase man's bondage. And that Paul, the Jew, would even consider the Jewish observances in the same context as the pagan festivals shows the intensity of his estimate of the deadly character of legalism. If it's hypocrisy to influence people to keep kosher and it misrepresents the truth of the gospel, do you think that's dangerous? And then to be faithful to the Jewish calendar, which brings into bondage and is associated with the same 
festivals as the pagan at this time. Do you think that's dangerous? Well, stay clear of it. Get away from it, okay? Get away from it. Be free. Now, sadly, many Christians have gotten tangled up with all kinds of varieties of the elements of the world by which they think they're more pleasing to God and typically more holy than others. And they're neither. They're neither, okay? Now, some of you have come out of, um, you know, how many guys, raise your hands, how many guys homeschool? And how many public schools? Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, those of you that have been a part of the homeschool movement for very long uh, know that historically it's been filled with problems. And I don't mean not socializing your children. Okay? That's an interesting uh, false idea about homeschoolers. I mean, it happens, but, but I always like it when, you know, somebody comes to me and says, well, aren't you worried about their socialization? And, uh, and I look at their life and I go, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm afraid that they would be socialized with you. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> some of us, have come out of various, uh, or a product even, of various homeschool ministries that were riddled with the elements of the world, which we call legalism. And uh, at my age, our generation is coming in on the tail end of that stuff, so I think we've experienced some of it, um, heard about much of it, uh, anything, just being tangled up in special diets, um, cooking habits, dress codes. My, so I have a lot of funny ones to talk about, but the one that I always am, am is just so hilarious to me is beards and, or no beards. And, and it's like, well, which New Testament passage did you turn to to condemn beards? Where did that come from? And how did you gospelize that? And how was it that people got sucked into that and shaved off their beard? It's no problem for me. I mean, I can hardly grow facial hair, but uh, how did you convince people of that? And the truth is we're legalists by heart. We love it. We just beat off of that stuff. Talking about moving people's families off the grid. Uh, just so many things. And, and I bring it up because the next generation of homeschoolers is going to have, to have to watch out for its own set of issues that have no biblical basis. Okay, But you guys, they are going to be sold to the homeschool community as gospel. And some people will bite. Okay, They'll take it. But we have to get ourselves anchored and remain biblically informed as we disciple our families through the next wave of weirdness, that we would remain as a community of grace as we're instructed by the scriptures. We're not carried away by some tradition of men or what some popular teacher comes out and says, because it's always from a popular teacher that says, this is the latest and the greatest for your family and you all need to do something. And we need to have enough of discernment to say, thanks for your opinion. Let's get back to the text of scripture. Okay, let's get back to the inspired word, okay? Because all that you are saying at this point is weak and beggarly. Okay, there's nothing better than the scriptures, okay? Others among us are vulnerable to other elements of the world. What makes you feel spiritual is not so much fellowship with Jesus himself, but with the fulfillment of religious checklists. That's how you measure success. But what you really need is you need a personal experience with the person of Jesus. How many of you guys are, um, you love lists, checklists? Just give me the list and I'll take care of it. And, and I'll just be so spiritual when I'm done. I'll have succeeded. And I'll be better than all of those non-list people as the fallen heart goes. Uh, I've only been in ministry for 17 years now. And, you know, people often come to me and they're just like, I just need the list. Just give me the list. 
Just tell me what I got to do, pastor. And typically I just say, no, I'm not going to give you a list. Because if I give them a list of things to do, rather than placing their hope in Jesus, they will put their hope in the completion of the list, completion of lists. And instead of being fulfilled by their intimacy with Christ, they will feel good about themselves because they just got everything done. I did it. I did it. And that's legalism. If they complete the list, they'll experience something called self-righteousness and pride. And God, uh, last time I checked in the scriptures, he resists the proud. If they fail to keep the list, they'll experience defeat. And if they do not have a real encounter with Jesus, they'll fall into despair. That's the nature of legalism. It either puffs you up or lets you down. That sounded like a Budweiser commercial. Fills you up and never lets you down. Whatever. That's legalism. It'll puff you up and then you'll explode or something. But it'll never draw you closer to Jesus. Like everyone else, the, the checklist Christian needs to repent so that they can experience true intimacy with Jesus. When he is given the preeminence in your life, checklists have a way of just fading away. And then you'll just find yourself enjoying him in his word through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through preaching the gospel. And rather than trying to conform yourself to the image of Christ, you'll find yourself being conformed by Christ himself. Okay, By Christ himself. I had mentioned to first service that when we study the, the doctrine of sanctification, this, the work of the Spirit, when he makes us more like Jesus, we are always passive in the work, meaning we don't affect it. We can't sanctify ourselves. He is always the active party in our sanctification. And there is no example in the New Testament where we are the active party accomplishing our own sanctification. Okay, now we can, the word means to be set apart. Yeah, we can avoid the bar. We can set ourselves apart from certain things, but as far as the work goes in the life of the believer, only he can do that. Okay? Now we, we have enough examples in our culture of behaviorless, of moralists, good people, but they're apart from Christ, and so they're not saved. So Jesus, he would love to you, for you to be moral because he loves righteousness. But righteousness apart from the redemption of Christ, I think is worse off than just flat out wickedness. Because when you're a moralist, you have this false sense of comfort that you're okay with God and you'll find yourself in hell. Whereas those that are wicked, uh, it's just obvious. Okay? And uh, when they come to the door of the church, they always crack their jokes and and say, if I go in there, will the roof fall in? They're aware of their wickedness. Well, I get struck by lightning just by hanging out with you. And I always say, it's not me you got to worry about, bro. <laughs> it's not me. It's something that's done to us in sanctification. Um, you know, in Hebrews, the author uh, expands on the story of Enoch in Genesis, saying you know, that Enoch walked with God at a time when there were no checklists or rules to keep. And the author of Hebrews says, for before Enoch was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. How did he please God without a checklist? How did he please God without rules and regulations? Because you want to talk about predating the law. This is for well over a thousand years before the law. He had nothing except he believed. It says, for before Enoch was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. We always quote the last part without Enoch, but it's a commentary on Enoch. 
who please God by faith alone, not for salvation alone, but for sanctification. He walked with God by faith. For Enoch, Jesus was the checklist. The same was true for Paul. You know, Paul was Mr. Checklist. He was all about the rules. He was all about marking things off, his accomplishments. And then he loved to boast about it. Paul was an insolent man. His checklist consisted of being circumcised the eighth day. Check. Of the stock of Israel. Check. And as he's listing them, you know, you can see his chest coming out. The tribe of Benjamin. Check. Hebrew of Hebrews. Check. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Check. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Check. And concerning the righteousness that comes by keeping the law, check. Yeah. He was Mr. Checklist. He had it all together on the list, but he was corrupted by sin and pride on the inside, and he was lost. Okay. But then after he met Jesus, he essentially flushed all of his checklists down the toilet. In Philippians 3, he, he says that I've counted it all lost for Christ. I've counted it as done in the, in the King James Version, as refuse in other translations. It was just garbage, okay? He concluded that all those things were less than nothing compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand. When Paul uses the Greek word for knowledge there, he's not talking about based upon information. It's, the word is for intimacy. It's intimate knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. He says the excellency of this intimate knowledge, this experience with the Son of God. And then from, on, from then on, his whole life was about apprehending more of Jesus. Read the rest of the, sec- the next section in there. He says, it's not that I've already apprehended, but there's one thing that I do. Oh, how many things? One thing that I do. He doesn't have a checklist, does he? He says, I press on. He says, I want to lay hold of that thing for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of Christ. And he says that Jesus is the prize. He is the upward call of God. He's everything. He's everything. It was just something about Jesus. And, and the more you acquaint yourself with him, the less you will care about the elements of the world, about rules and regulations. As he becomes our all in all, his name will appear on every space of your checklist. He will be your motive. He'll be an end in himself. Okay? And then our lives will take on, as a natural consequence, this wonderful likeness to Jesus. And all the things that we were trying to accomplish through a checklist will naturally flow out of a relationship with Jesus. We mentioned last week, Jesus said, not as a command, but a statement of fact, if you love me, you'll obey me. So would you just fall in love with Jesus and the rest will just flow out of your life? Okay. I think it's true all of us need to evaluate our own lives. I couldn't possibly address all of the the ridiculous things that we all put into our lives and then consider those things to be of some value to our spiritual life. They have no place in the new covenant. Uh, They may not even be found in the old covenant. But, you know, we are quite creative people and we have all these standards that we've, we've come up with and we think, if I can just do this, I'll be better, I'll be more acceptable, I'll be more pleasing. It's a lie. It's called legalism. And if, as Paul says, it's associated with idols and demons, well, we know it's certainly not from Jesus who is calling you to himself. So maybe it has a different source. I think all of us have something to 
repent of in this area and just have our faith purified so that it's all about Christ, his preeminence. You know, it says, Paul says that God has done all of this with Jesus so that he would become all in all. Paul says, I do one thing. Okay, I forget the things that are behind and I press on to Jesus. Amen? Well, let's do it then. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Next week, um, I'm going to bring probably the beginning of, I hate calling it a series, um, but I want to talk about the covenants with you. I want to bring as much clarity to all of this as I can. Just as Paul in chapter 3 talked about the the purpose of the covenant, the duration of the covenant, um, and all of that, the constituents of the covenants, and... um, and then when I finish chapter 4, I think it'll be, you'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. And I've taught this before, and people have said it's very helpful. So I look forward to presenting it to you as well. If you have any questions about what I've talked about today, uh, please come, come chat with me. If you need prayer, I'm always available to pray with people. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I just want people, as Paul will say, to be free, to stand fast in the freedom with which Christ has made us free that we would not be entangled again to a yoke of bondage, whether it be Jewish things or non-Jewish things, whatever it might be that distracts us, Lord, from our clear vision of you, our walk with you, a walk of faith. Lord, just help us to be purged of all that and to simplify the faith, Lord, and just walk with you. So, Lord, thank you for my church family. I pray, Lord, that as we're all in this journey together, that we would be better informed by your word and that we would just walk closer to you. Help us, we pray. Give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.